I, I may, uh, yeah. We're live. The meeting is now streaming. Here we go. All Welcome right. back to the DKP, everybody. Excellent. Yep, yep. We have the the whole crew on. Uh, we we almost didn't get Titus, but we we poked him and prodded him and provoked him so that he yeah. had to join to defend his territory. They were, uh, you guys were promoting some false teaching on our little podcast thread, so I wanted to come on here and get the <laughs> record straight. Well, I thought what was being said on there was fire, and I wasn't even the one saying it. So, um. well, three against one. Here we go. <laughs> well, let's jump in. We wanted to talk. Uh, well, we we our original idea tonight was to talk about some. I don't remember, Anthony. You dropped something, and I I'm just I'm I'm politicked out. I I don't have the stomach for it. Mm -hmm. Although that being said, I am trying to put yes. together some more materials. Uh, we're always a little bit behind the curve. I ha I have some stuff coming up. I did a I did a podcast interview with Asher Whitmer this week. Um, Jonathan Good was there Sweet. with me and Dan Ziegler. So I'm hoping Asher gets that out soon. We were talking about the question of voting, and and Dean Taylor's supposed to have some stuff that's dropping any day now. I keep sweating him about it so we can get some materials out before the election comes. But all that being said, I'm I'm kind of tired of talking about that. So we wanted to get back to our roots, back to what really matters in the kingdom of God. And there's a, there's a lot of things about, about how we structure the church, generally what we would call ecclesiology, that, that I think are important conversations that, that I don't hear happening in a lot of places. So I wanted to really talk about what, how should the church be structured? What should we be doing as far as government and, and missiology, how we start new churches, how we set up and structure ourselves as the people of God, and where do we look for clues for that, and how do we be successful at expanding the kingdom? So where should we start, guys? Should we start with our controversy with missions? That, that's kind of getting into missions rather than get, getting into church to start with, but we can do that if you want. Well, let's start with missions and we'll work backwards because there's a way to get from A to B that way. So let me lay out my premise and, and, and uh, Titus can lay out his antithesis. Or do you want to start, Titus? Um, I, maybe I'll start since I think yours is kind of the, the negative of mine, maybe. Okay. Um, I, I've been really influenced by some evangelical teachers who talk a lot about missions like David Platt and even John Piper, um, mostly David Platt with his book Radical. Uh, have any of you guys read that? Yep. That hands down is my favorite Christian book. Um, it It is the book that that has in, impacted my life the most and I think made the most impact in decisions I make um, as far as like our, our lifestyle and our goals and all that. And he talks about a lot about caring for the poor and the physical needs of the world, but he also talks about the spiritual needs of the world. And uh, he talks about unreached people groups. And I think that's where the rub is here. Um, the way that Platt and, and a lot of the folks like at, at the Joshua Project define unreached people group is a group of people with 2% or less uh, Christians. I think evangelical Christians is, is how they define it. Um, and they estimate that if there's 2% or less Christians, then there's not enough Christians within that ethnic group, that people group to effectively evangelize their own people. 
which means that if you're born in one of those people groups, the chances are you will be born, live your entire life, and die without ever hearing the gospel, many times without ever hearing the name of Jesus. So, um, for instance, when Brent and I traveled to India, we go into villages, and the, the question I ask, I, I learned how to ask this in Hindi, is have you ever heard the name of Jesus? Because if they haven't even heard the name, chances are they've also not heard the gospel, obviously. Um, and, and many times they say no, which is insane that there's still people on the planet who haven't even heard the name of Jesus. So that, that is my focus. Like that is what I believe we should be pouring our energy and our time into um, rather than simply proclaiming the gospel or our version of the gospel to people who've already heard it or to people who already have Bibles and can read about it um, or to people who have a gospel that's different from what we believe is the true gospel. I mean, that's important too. I just don't think it should be our priority. So for you, it all comes down to a matter of access. It's equalizing access. Yeah, it's a, it's a justice issue. It really is a social justice issue that if, if someone has a Bible and has a church on their doorstep, even if that church um, is compromised in many ways, they have far more than someone who has absolutely none of it. They, have, they at least have the opportunity to find the true gospel. Whereas someone in India who dies without ever hearing the name of Jesus um, does not have that opportunity. Okay, so my my antithesis to that position it isn't really antithetical, it, it, but it needs to. It would need to be narrowed quite significantly. So what I would say is that some of it's for personal reasons, and some of it's for for pragmatic reasons, and some of it's for theological reasons. So personally, I grew up in charity churches. I mean, grew up, I grew up in the faith in charity circles with a very heavy emphasis on, on foreign missions. And the, the outcomes of that weren't very good. Let's just say that way. I, 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 it's not that, that there aren't positive things. Um, there certainly are. But the amount that when I think of the cost and the time and the energy in balance with the results, it's really not great. So what so so I'm asking myself if if our interest really is spreading the gospel, how should we be doing that? And I've been asking myself that for a long time as a former street preacher. You know, I asked that about my own life, my own ministry. Like I used to go out in the streets and scream my fool head off all the time, like literally every weekend. And there was finally so little fruit from it. It's not for lack of zeal. It's not for lack of desire. It's not because I'm ashamed of the gospel, but why am I not making disciples? And, and when I finally get to the root of that and spend years thinking about it, I have to reassess. And I have to say, there has to be a better investment of, of my, my resources and me as a resource to the church. So in all this reevaluation, if we put it all on the table and say, what's the most sensible way to do what we're called to do? I think that I would agree with you with someone who really is dramatically unreached. So if you're talking about very remote, very small numbers of tribes of people with maybe undeveloped languages still that, that with no access to the scriptures, there's certainly place to be investing in those people so that they have the scriptures in their language, so that they have access. I can get behind that in the most remote cases. 
but where we have access to the broader population, like say Saudi Arabia, I can interact with Saudis all across American metro areas. So, so my premise is I read Revolution World Missions from KP Yohanan and it was, it was a mind changer. It was a game yeah. changer to me when I read that. And you know, nothing for nothing where it's at. Now, when I read that book, I was like, this is the deal. For sure, we have to send Indians to make churches for Indians. We have to send Chinese people to make churches for Chinese people. This makes so much more sense to use American resource, i.e. money, to fund natives to do church work among their own people. That's a way cleaner system. But part two that I, that I wish somebody would write is Revolution World Missions part two, is that we have access to almost all those cultures in American metro areas. And if you wanna work with Laotians, if you wanna work with Eritreans, if you wanna work with Ethiopians, Somalis, Cambodians, whoever, if you wanna work with almost anybody in the world, you can do it in New York City or LA or, or Chicago or Boston. All these people groups are represented in America. Now, when I think, and, and to, to you know, state my own prejudices, I've done, I've, I'm involved in foreign mission work in Africa. We have a church community in Kampala. And so I'm not dismissive of the labors of people who have done that work before. It's really important. Can you wait just a second, son? Listen, say hi to the guys. Hey. Hey, hey buddy. I, I'm not dismissive of the work of people that have gone before and done that. It's, it, it is important. You know, Charlton Swayze is one of the most faithful brothers I know. And he's really labored. But what we, interact, what we encounter is over and over again the same issues. How do you work out motives? How do you deal with the subtle things? How do you deal with the problems that come up with putting Westerners especially in post-colonial places. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, huge liability. And you spend literally years devolving those issues that come with putting Westerners in post-colonial places. I could do so much more, so much quicker, if I could have sent uh, a converted kingdom Christian from Uganda that I met in, in the... Um, there's a, there's a whole neighborhood of Ugandans here on the West end of Boston. If we could have made a convert there and sent him back as an apostle to those churches, I've already undone all of that potential problem because, because there's, there's already a, a, a filtering of motive. He already got out. If he's in America, he's already gotten his golden visa. He's already gotten what everybody in Uganda wants, a trip to America and a place to be here. And if he has had that and, and walked away from it, at least it, temporarily, to go back and work with his own people there, we've already purified the motives of that, of that person immensely. And then he knows his own culture, he knows his own language, he knows his own people. Okay, so there's side one of the revolution part two. And then the second part of the equation of my antithesis is that the, the American culture is not, in post-Christian world, my liberal and atheist friends and the kids growing up in the block and in the projects mm. don't know the name of Jesus either. They That's really right. don't. And there's such a bastardized version of Jesus in America that has nothing to do with the real historic Jesus of Nazareth that it's, a, it, it's tantamount to a false God parading. It's almost like 
the the religion of isa versus the religion of the of the christian gospel it's just the american version I, and i wish we would call mm -hmm. him like something else i wish we'd give him a different name i wish like isa we had a different name for the american jesus that's nothing like jesus of nazareth because that's how it's taught preached proclaimed and and administered and so people that know isa don't know the god uh the 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 incarnate son of god and people that know what they've learned in the american churches in many many instances don't know anything about the gospel of the kingdom so those people are unreached effectively too right right like like yeah i mean to to put it in a little more specific terms you know titus's term is you've got a church on your doorstep and that's true still of most people in the united states um so you could say if they want to seek after god they can go check it out but the church that's there is could could very well a young seeker could end up um dying in a firefight in iraq Mm -hmm. with his pastors because his pastor sent him there um is that did you save that person i mean did that person did that person encounter the gospel or dying or in a they... crack den or in a skinhead gang calling himself a christian yes. right or yeah in any in any number of other horrendous situations that are just as far from god as as a yeah as a child soldier in the jungle somewhere or shooting um, up a mosque and thinking he does God a favor. Yeah, I know people like this. Right. So, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real, I, I think, I think that the whole conversation is confused by the fact that we haven't been bold enough to call things that are anti Christ, anti Christ. Um, uh -huh. and, and if we recognize, if we recognize, if we recognize things by their fruit, by their actions, by their teachings, rather than by their labels, that they're self-applied labels, um, I think the question of what which places are unreached and which places are reached changes a lot. Um, David, if you want to chime in here before I respond, go ahead. Yeah, um, um, one of the things that that has really bothered me with uh, specifically conservative, I don't, I, I guess I would say evangelical. I spent about five years, um, between, well, between five and 10 years, depends on how you count, really involved with, uh, the conservative holiness movement, which would be, um, they'd be pretty, pretty conservative, but very strongly evangelical. Right. And they're, um, they have a major missions emphasis. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a big thing, you know, people being called to go to Africa and this and that. And something that I saw really strongly that really bothered me was this, uh, this codependency that I saw um, that basically we're over here and the world in the, in, in the U S they're not listening anymore. The U S is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, the, you know, the Democrats are winning and cause you know, that's a big part of it, you know, and it's just, the world is just going wicked. And, and so we're going to go to these other countries where those people need us you know and they come and they listen to us and they do what we say and we've got to make sure even though we've been down there like some of the missions that i know of that missionaries have been going down there now for 50 years um right. in, in missions and stuff and there's still uh there's still american conference president there's still american pastors and there's still american leadership and the whole structure is an american structure that's overlaid on their 
on their culture, which that's not how they do business. That's not how they understand. So they have to learn all this way of doing and being that doesn't work in their culture, but it makes us feel good because now there's somebody out there that's listening to us. There's somebody out there that needs us. Um, and it's this, it, it, it feels desperate in it. And um, I guess it feels like the motive is not actually what it should be, um, which is, you know, that the, the, the people are being reached and it seems more like it's a, it's an extension of the same um, imperialist uh, colonial spirit that um that's led to a lot of the problems in the world to start with and, and that's something i feel like i've kind of seen firsthand is that kind of codependency and that really bothers me about the big focus that we've got to go and save these people so i i actually agree with like a lot of you guys like concerns with the missions movement so like what what you talked about david i mean there's so many bad ways to do missions so i grew up in africa and uh, with under Amish Mennonite aid, my, my dad was a, a beachy pastor there. And so I, I know all about bad ways of doing missions. Sorry to throw them under the bus, but um, there's good things that came from that too. But, and, and Matthew, if I come back to the, the things you said, so you mentioned like a, a completely isolated tribe, like on the Andaman and Nicobar islands and there being a place for Americans to go there. Well, uh, the, the people who haven't ever heard the name of Jesus or, or anything about the gospel are not just in places like that. Um, they're in, they're in the, your bread and butter Indian village. Um, and but, I think but, maybe that, but Indians are better to reach them is my point. Yeah. And I was going to, I was just going to say that next. I think that's why you, you brought up like, why don't we share the gospel with like an, an Indian in Boston and then send them, which I, I mean, that is great. If you can do that, like that is going to be more effective than me going over there. However, that's really hard. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's but, possible, but, is but it's the really time, hard. Is the time, energy, and money that we would take to fund your family to go to India better served making Indian Christians here where you don't have to work through all that other stuff? Like it's hard either way. It's hard to send you over there. It's hard to have you learn new language and culture. It's hard to have you work through the systems, yeah. and the government stuff there. If you took all of that and wrapped it up and say, let's make Travis and his family missionaries to the Indian community in LA, mm -hmm. is that a better potential reward for the investment? In, I mean, in it might be. I, I don't want to ha need people in america to support me financially despite me joking sure. around about but even that if you do it, even if you do it yourself um i don't know i mean there's there's definitely liabilities to an american going over there um like you guys have pointed out i honestly think there's some benefits and it, in it in a gross way um because americans are put on a platform they will listen to you more quickly right. and that is gross and it's twisted but it can be you it can be leveraged for the gospel i sure. i think um we, but i wanted to that. also we do yeah. leverage that in kampala but i don't know that the from my own experience i don't know that the liabilities are worth the benefits so i honestly have no issue like if that's your strategy my main all I'm saying is like, we need to focus on these unreached people. So if your strategy is to, to reach people within their ethnicity here and send them there, great. You're, you're, still, go, you're still trying to reach the same goal that I'm saying should be the goal of the church. Um, 
But to circle back to like the, the America's unreached, like I, I hate that phrase simply because the the word unreached has been coined by missiologists and it has a very specific definition. So if you want to use an, another word for America, um, like unsaved or under a false gospel, I'd be happy for that. It's just it's it's kind of like appropriation to use that term um, for America when it has specifically been coined within a certain study in Christian theology for uh, yeah, I don't think that's a fair assessment. I'll push back against that because how big of a how big of a group are you talking about is unreached? Okay, so say you've got a tribe in the Amazon that's by, by that definition unreached. Say there's a tribe of three thousand people somewhere in the Amazonian Delta that are unreached by that category, but in the terms of Brazil, they're not unreached. So, like, narrow down. What my do you mean? What's that? I didn't quite follow that. Why, why would it matter where they are? What, what matters is how many Christians are within the ethnic group. Okay, but, but within the country that that ethnic group is in, they're not unreached. So Brazil's not unreached, but a part of a tribe within Brazil might be re sure. unreached. So when I say people so group, I'm, say, not meaning, I'm not meaning geopolitical nations. I'm meaning ethno, ethne, like. Okay, but, but, look, but look at the same analysis. If I say... Michigan is doesn't qualify as unreached, but if you give me a housing project with a thousand people where the children growing up there has never heard anything about Jesus, don't they qualify as unreached? Yeah, yeah. So if you had a bunch of um, a, a certain type of Muslim living in Detroit, um, and and there, yeah, and and there's less than two percent Christian there, and they don't have churches and they, they do not interact with broader American culture. Right. Yes. And I think there are small pockets of that in America, but it's very rare. Like the immigrants to America, although, yeah, they do keep to themselves, they, they definitely interact with, with um, Americans. So it's, it's much less so than in the countries from wh where they came from. But I'm just talking about kids growing up in the ghetto. Here's, here's the experience that, that, that shifted my focus. When I was looking at moving and starting a community in Detroit, this would have been in probably, I don't know, 2010-ish. Um, I was getting involved in, in, in downtown Detroit with, uh, with uh, um, an evangelical ministry just because I didn't know anybody there and I was just trying to make connections. And they had a, they had a, a, a housing unit for men. It was, it, it was like just, it was just housing. And they call it the Jesus house. And I went there, I was looking at buying a house in that neighborhood. And I had a friend introduce me, we went and saw all the guys at the Jesus house. And um, he introduced me and said, this is the Milioni family. Um, they don't normally allow women in the men's house, but my wife and my daughters came with me just so we could meet everybody. And, and he said, this is the Milioni family, they're considering moving into the neighborhood. And one of the guys I was talking to in that room, by the way, it's like January, it's cold outside. They're all in ski suits because they don't have any heating in the house. And one of the guys starts crying and I, and I'm like, well, what's, what's that about? And he's, he's finally chokes it back. And he says, a family hasn't moved into this neighborhood in more than 10 years. And he said, the children that live in this neighborhood don't even know that mothers and fathers go together. They've never even seen a family. There's no concept of what you are in this place. And that kind of thing isn't rare 
in America, in American metro areas. It's not rare in Cleveland. It's not rare in Detroit. It's not rare in Cincinnati. It's not rare in certain parts of LA. It's really, there's a huge group of people that fit that category that know nothing about who and what we are. And I say, I don't know if they technically qualify by the missiology definition, but I say those are unreached people. I, well, I want to say a little something about the unreached terminology too, because it feels to me a little bit like a, um, a, a little bit like a self-serving definition because so they define that it's, that it's, you know, 2%. Well, that's great, but it's, two uh, percent of evangelical christians which means people that agree with us right well, if i'm going to use that same definition then except we're going to say kingdom christians instead of um right. evangelical christians well now we're back to the same thing like they create a definition that that suits them for their purposes and it doesn't it doesn't feel fair that now they get to define what makes you christian and what makes you not christian because some of the places that they would classify as unreached aren't unreached if you count Catholics, but they don't want to count Catholics because Catholics aren't the right kind of Christians. But if I look at evangelicals and say they're the wrong kind of Christians, well, then I'm just being a little bit judgmental. Yeah, and that, that's a good point, um, which is why I didn't want to mention that it was evangelical. <laughs> um, but but I, this comes back to a point that I did want to touch on, which is I, I think I would have a sense of like, who my brother and sister in Christ is that, that would be different than where you guys are at. And, and this comes back to a dilemma that I've mentioned a lot, which is I don't think there's any biblical criterion that we can use to determine what are primary and what are secondary theological issues. I just, I don't know any way to resolve that issue in my mind. And ultimately it comes down to how we weight certain doctrines as like, what's primary, what's secondary, how much theological difference are we willing to live with? And I, I tend to be fairly ecumenical um, for, for a couple of reasons. I, 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 some of the groups that have influenced me the most, like the Moravians are very ecumenical. Um, I've been really inspired by them. Um, like Francis Chan, for example, has really influenced me. He's very ecumenical. He, like, well, he grew up in the reform setting um, spent time in the charismatic world, and now he's kind of flirting with Orthodox, the Orthodox Church a little bit. Um, but the, I mean, that's those are kind of lame reasons. Um, I, I guess it, it just it, to me, it just comes down to like what our, what our gut feeling is, right? And so my gut feeling of of what a true Christian is is a lot broader than I think where you guys are at, and I don't know biblically how to resolve that. It doesn't mean that. I mean, I, I, I am frustrated with the American evangelical church I, as a system. I, I hate it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we all agree that there are individuals within that structure who are true Christians. Absolutely. I would probably, I would probably say there's quite a bit more than what I, I, I'm guessing you guys would say. And I would probably say that I'm, I'm less antagonistic to the structure probably than you guys are also. I don't, I don't know that you can get to be any more antagonistic than you guys are. <laughs> I think it's um, the second part of that evaluation that's correct and maybe not the first. I don't think that we would probably disagree with, I, I mean, maybe, but nobody's numbering it. Uh, I think there's a lot of genuine people who are disciples of Jesus within those systems, but I am very, very antagonistic against that system. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to weigh in on that as well, Titus, because that's, 
I mean, that's an important point um, when we're weighing these things. Um, <clears throat> Dave's point about, yeah, which kind of Christians count as you count for being reached. Um, I, yeah, it's much more, I believe the, theology matters as I know you do, Titus. Um, but, but I, but I, I don't judge a Christian primarily by their theology. I'm looking at whether, and I think all of us should be looking at whether the life of this person demonstrates transformation out of the loyalties and allegiances and patterns of behavior that are destroying the world and humanity. And like, that's, that's what the whole core of the thing is. If you, ha if you aren't clearly being transformed into something other, um, then, you, then you aren't a Christian. If your Christianity is something that's really dearly held and it you know, makes you very nice to people who hold the same views, but you behave toward other tribes and other groups of people exactly like someone, you know, your, your attitudes and mindsets are indistinguishable from a pagan's attitudes and mindsets toward other human beings that you know that that threaten you or that don't hold your same views or whatever then you're not a christian and 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 so and and i think by that definition we also have a problem with that issue with that question of who's reached because we have very large chunks of the christian community um in the the so-called christian community in the united states that is indistinguishable from pagans and they can they can lead you on a Roman's road or maybe do better than that, uh, give you a lot of good theology. Um, I don't and, and there are many people whose theology basically agrees with mine. And I look at the way they deal with the oppressed or the vulnerable and the attitudes and allegiances they have. And I'm like, I don't care about your theology. Your right. heart is set on on the devil and his and his priorities. And so. So. I think if we're going, I think we can probably all agree on that definition that being a Christian has to be, if it's anything, um, li living in a transformed way with other, with other human beings and in relation to God. And, and if, if we can share that working definition, you know, then our question of miss missiology, maybe we can have a, a common language rather than you know, a, a disagreement over what's reached or what's not reached. But, but, but I, I do think, I, I think it matters. I think it matters. I, I'm very ecumenical in the sense that I really don't care nearly as much as I used to what denomination a person hails from, um, you know, what, what label they put on themselves. You can tell very quickly with somebody, whether they're, whether they're, um, allegiance whether their affections are in heaven or whether they're not and 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 that's and that's what distinguishes us from well, that's what just that's what that's why jesus came was to save us from the world the the flesh and the devil and and being a christian has to mean being saved from those things so so when i look at the world around me when i look at the people in my neighborhoods I see, I see people that are saved and people that are not. And we have large areas of our cities and so on 
that speak our language that we already know how to communicate with them that you know we don't have a language much of a language barrier we don't have much of a you know like all the all the reasons matthew gave that have never seen what it looks like for a people to be transformed I don't know if you guys are following the comment thread, but Dwight Gingrich actually on my on my page. Dwight Gingrich is watching. Apparently, oh he offered wow! A, a Hi, great, <laughs> yeah, I offered saw a, that. It's good. A great resolution of unreached and post-reached, and the 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 thing I like about that is it allows post-reached to be to apply to a lot of categories because, to be quite frank, the kingdom of God has a lot of mess to clean up in its colonial missions aftermath like the the christianity that there is in in uh, certainly east africa where i've traveled is is as bad or worse than everything that we've done here and and no surprise it's come from here and mm -hmm. so the that allows us to apply term a term like post reach to the the name it and claim it prosperity gospel in east Asia, east east africa that needs just as much reformation as as what's calling itself Christianity in America, and it allows us to apply a term of of need to 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 these cases that are not these you know isolated, unreached, untouched peoples, but also in desperate need of the gospel, just like post Christian America. So. Uh, one of you, and I can't remember if it was Anthony or Matthew, said something privately that I'd, I'd like you to repeat publicly um, and maybe as, as, as a clarification um, be, along the lines of um, the, because we're talking, we're talking about, you know, people that are, that are sincerely Christians, you know, that, that are transformed, but you said something along the lines of, um, you know, people's eternal state that's in the hands of God but you can't properly call it Christian. Um, I think it might've been you, Anthony. Um, do you recall, do you recall the comment? Was that just in our yeah. thread today? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like the pre-conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's your specific question about you? You want, you well, want me to just restate that? Yeah. You were, you were, t we're talking about, um, we're not, we're talking about what what you can define as these are people that follow Jesus. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, you think of your Baptist or whatever that's raised in a God and country kind of environment, and that's all the gospel they've ever heard, and they love Jesus within that to the best of their knowledge. Um, we're not sitting here saying that everybody like that is 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 damned to the pits of hell, but they're not living in conformity to what the teachings of Christ are, and you can't properly call that mm -hmm. Christian. Um, right. I think, I think, yeah, I mean, you restated pretty much what I, what I meant. The, the, uh, yeah, the idea that there are, that there are parameters on the faith once delivered to the saints. Mm -hmm. Um, and the apostles handed down teachings. Jesus gave us clear teachings, what his kingdom is about. And, and, um, you know, if we go around judging, we're responsible for what we think that is. And, mm -hmm. and each of us is responsible for that, to live that out to the best of our knowledge. And if we begin to call things that, you know, we, we begin to match things up and we say, well, this doesn't look like what Jesus and the apostles gave us. Um, but they're, they say they're Christians, so they must be. 
um, at that point, the, the term loses all meaning. Um, so we can be wrong about exactly where those parameters are. And that's why God's the judge. Um, we probably are wrong in some areas of, you know, where we draw the boundaries of what's Christian and what isn't. Um, we probably draw them too wide sometimes and too narrow sometimes. But, but there, the boundaries do exist. And, and, I, and personally, I have a very broad view uh, as to who, you know, I think, who I think God saves I, you know, th this, this is probably too big a subject for tonight, but I, I, I'll just go on record that I don't believe people are damned to hell or to destruction for things they had no choice in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's unjust and I do not attribute that behavior to God. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what that means for unreached people groups who are born and die without ever hearing the name of Christ. But I know that if Christ is worth preaching, then I'm not going to attribute things to him that I think are unjust. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's as much as I'll say on that. Yeah, we're going down a conditionalist trail. To yeah, no, podcast. That, wasn't, that, <laughs> that wasn't where I was trying to take it, Matthew. <laughs> but um, the reason why I wanted that stated clearly was because if I was somebody hearing that um, and, and it's, it even years ago especially but even now if i was somebody hearing it and what didn't know the people hadn't had the conversations i might have heard you as saying everybody that doesn't share this view of christianity is damned right and i just wanted to i just wanted that clarified that that's not what's being said because we don't know who's damned and who who isn't yeah but we do know this is what jesus said and if you know what jesus said and you decide not to do not to do what he said um i don't want to be you yeah, we can't make any guarantees at that point. Right. And we shouldn't. So it, if you would look at it from a perspective of justice, like equal opportunity of access to the gospel, I think that's, and we don't need to keep going around and around on this, but th maybe this will be my final point on this. I think that's the point I'd like to drive home. And I, I'm actually with you, Anthony. Like I, I used to be a hard advocate of everyone who's never heard the gospel was going to go to hell and they deserve it, you know, because they sinned at this point. Like, I, I don't know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I'll leave that in God's hands. That's not my motivation anymore. My motivation is to see people from every tribe and nation and tongue around the yes. throne and to be obedient to Jesus command to proclaim the gospel. Um, but if we look at it from a perspective of justice, someone in America who has a Bible and who's, part of an evangelical church, even if there's false teaching there, has, I, I believe has more than someone in India who has none of that. And maybe you think that's less. Maybe you think that like a twisted version of the gospel is less than, than no gospel. Yes. But I, I guess that depends on like, do you put, do you put the um, emphasis on there being a representative of the true gospel who can proclaim it? Or do you put an emphasis on on the Bible and the Spirit's power to work through the Bible and convict people? And I, I think both are important, but, like, if, if they have the Bible and, and the opportunity for the Spirit, I mean, dude, like, they, they can read the Sermon on the Mount. That, I mean, how clear is it? Like, just read the Sermon on the Mount, and all of Jesus' most important teachings are clearly spelled out. And if you can do that and still... Like, go ignore all of it. Like, I was reading in James this morning where 
he said at, at the end of his whole list of like work stuff throughout the whole book, he said, and above all, do not swear. If you can read that and still think it's okay to swear oaths, like, right. I don't know what else to say to you. I'm going to go to someone who doesn't have that and get, but and when give that's them the your, but when that's your sacred text, Titus, and you're taught your whole life from the first time you can speak and the first time you can understand that it doesn't really mean that what good has it done you? Well, th this is, this touches the, the, the thing that I think is missing Titus in that framework. Like that's a very evangelical viewpoint and a, a way of thinking about how faith comes to a person, you, the spirit and the Bible, but that was never supposed to happen. The faith was never supposed to be transmitted to anyone outside the context of a community, right? Like the community is how the faith is transmitted. How should they hear and, without a preacher? Right. And, and so if your community is transmitting falsehoods to you, you have a you have a very low chance of breaking through all of that confusion and crawling out on your own against the against the the warnings of everyone who led you to the faith um and coming up with a different conclusion about what jesus meant by what he said and and all of those other related issues so but maybe maybe we should maybe david should have a chance to say something and then and then we should give Titus the last word and move on to the uh, church growth. Uh, yeah. Subject. Since I, Titus is outnumbered here, we're just hammering him. I, I do want to, as he was talking, something, a story that I read came to mind. Um, and it's actually really kind of gruesome um, or, or horrific, but whatever. And it's regarding the, the unreached people groups. There was, I was reading about some tribes down in Brazil that... Um, that I forget what they said the mortality rate was from from being killed by other people like homicide, tribes killing each other and fighting all the time. I think it was one in one in three or one in four men that the way they died was at the end of a spear or an arrow or something because these tribes were always mm -hmm. fighting and killing each other. And that one tribe would go and attack the other, you know, and they're strung out villages or whatever, and and they would kill all the men and they take the women. Um, you know, because they didn't want to, you know, because then they can propagate their tribe and so forth. And if those women had little children, they just leave them in the jungle to die because those are the seed of, of the enemy tribe. We don't want them. Um, so they'd leave their, you know, just slaughter the men and leave the kids there um, to fend for themselves and go. And this has been going on for literally centuries. And I thought about the the power of the gospel to come into a community where people like that is a hellish life to live. And, and, to, and to live that for, for generations and for the gospel to come and say, there's another way that you don't have to live. You don't have to live with these endless cycles of violence. You have to, don't have to live with fear that, that the other, that you're, you know, you're going to get killed. There's, there's another life. There's a better way to live. And those tribes, to hear that gospel, um, they can hear it gladly and they can realize that. Where um, here, you try to tell people that in our country. And they're like, well, yeah, but it's actually totally cool. And, and that's what evangelicals would do um, well, is, is they would go down there and tell those tribes they need to stop killing each other because that's not what you should do. But then uh, here they're telling their, their tribe that it's okay to go kill the other tribes. Right. What's, you know, and so to me, it feels like the false gospel that we have here, um, and I've become more and more um, just adamant about about this this idea the gospel of peace 
And once you've convinced people that Jesus didn't actually mean the gospel of peace to be what it is, like you've completely gutted the gospel and you can't even argue with these people because they built this whole superstructure around why Jesus didn't actually mean that and why it actually is okay. And even people that have been raised with it um, and, and been indoctrinated in non-resistance, we're watching the inroads of, well, maybe it's okay to, you know, redemptive violence and all that type of thing. It's okay to kill somebody in these circumstances or those circumstances. Um, I, I view that as a much greater threat to people being able to receive the gospel than the fact that they don't have a Bible in their language. Because what the devil's done in one case is he's kept the Bible away from them, but when they get it, it's good news and they're ready to understand it's ready to be preached to them. The people who have it, like the meaning has been so perverted, you've got to deprogram them to get the truth through to them. Well, I think that was Titus's argument. Um. <laughs> yeah, what, just what? For, forget it. Like, <laughs> abandon project and go somewhere where they haven't heard no, it. But, but no, I'm not saying that. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying mm. is we need to be reaching the people in this culture because, because if we don't, if we don't fight those fights and work to redeem this culture, um, we're, we're talking, we're talking, I guess, levels of reachness. And so what I'm saying is if we're talking about who has the most need, it's the people who've got the perverted gospel that have a greater need than the people that have never heard at all. Well, the, there's another whole so, issue right point. around that, that, that says that you have to, I think that Jesus is teaching us to start where we have access. Jerusalem is the closest place where you're, you have influence and opportunity. And that's the framework for which, and this is the other, I think, travesty of the foreign mission model, at least as it's been practiced a lot, is that we're sending, we're not, we're not sending people who are practiced and experienced at making disciples and starting churches here to go to, and then exporting them to go do it somewhere else. Like you're so successful at doing this among your own people, go take on the risk and liability of doing it in a 10 times more difficult air arena because you're so good at it because you're practiced because you're experienced because you understand we're sending 20 year old kids now for the last 50 years we're sending 20 year old kids and brand new fresh married couples who haven't done church work to go do the hardest most difficult church work that there is and that doesn't make any sense either and so cutting our teeth our ministerial teeth in places where we're in our own environment and language make make way more sense and then prioritize those who are good at doing it. And if you're going to export somebody, export them. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely get behind that. Um, I, yeah, and I, I think that the crux of this, I mean, I, I can like, like whether distorted gospel is worse than no gospel. I don't know. I mean, sure. I can, <laughs> uh, they're both bad. Um, and, and I think that the whole crux of this comes down to like how ecumenical we are and what we think is false gospel and true gospel. Um, so we need to do a, a podcast on that at some point. Cause like, I, I, I believe that there's more good within Protestantism and Orthodoxy and Catholicism than I, I think you guys do. Although I could be wrong. So we should do a, a whole episode on that, but we should, we I should. Did, so as my final like statement, 
I mean, I, I feel like you guys kind of beat me in this debate, and I, at least probably by our u- viewers' definition, because um, I'm guessing most of them will be on your side, which is fine. Um, it wasn't a fair but, fight, though. <laughs> yeah, but, which I'm fine with that, because like even so, so for those who are watching, even if you agree with with these three guys as opposed to with the truth, um, my my point is simply that like the the church should put more effort than they're currently putting into places in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus and have no Bibles. Like, like mission work to the unreached is a good thing, whether you're making disciples here to send there, um, whatever, whatever approach you're using, like, and I think you guys would all agree with that, that like, this is super mm-hmm. important. Let's not let evangelicals outdo us there. Like if we have the true right. gospel, we should be the ones pouring our energy into taking the gospel to the unreached in China and India rather than letting the evangelicals do it. Um, I and think that, that's a great I mean, compromise yeah. between all of our positions. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can back you up on that. And by the way, Titus, I, you know, I listen to your podcast and when I hear you talk about these things um, it's always inspiring. And I really, I really, really appreciate your heart and some of the things that were said about motives. Um, I hope that you didn't take personally, because I certainly don't feel like you've got uh I don't sense those weird, uh, any self-glorification or that kind of thing in you. Um, and I appreciate your, we, we need your voice. Thanks. And, and I think too, it's not, it's not disparaging of people who have paid real tremendous have, personal yeah. sacrifice to do foreign missions mm-hmm. work over the, mm-hmm. over the many, many years of Christian gospel work. Uh, I don't mean yep. to slight any of that. I just want to, I just want to be able to have the room to consider, are we doing this the best way it can be done? Mm-hmm. So let's move on from there. It's a good opportunity. The reason I wanted to run it that way, and I don't know how much time we want to invest in, in church structure issues after the missiology question, but ecclesiology, how we structure the church is a really interesting topic to me. And, and, and has been to us as a people here in, in the Boston church, trying to figure out how are we supposed to organize ourselves and what do the clues that we, and instructions that we get in the scriptures, how, how, how do we apply them to how we're self-organized to our politics really is what the question is. What's the politics of the church, the local mm-hmm. church. And, um, uh, by way of like introduction, what I would say that, where, where I'm at in regards to those like big picture structural issues is that we've been doing church growth wrong for a long time. Um, what, what I think our conventional model has been, uh, it, it, let's, let's, let's focus on domestic church growth. What does it mean to, to, to grow a church in America? So there's two models. One is the mega church model, which is fairly new, where you just grow in one place in indefinitely where you have thousands and thousands of people all calling themselves a church in one place, which like a, I don't, like I don't think that, right. I don't think that's a big temptation to many of us. The other model has been for church growth has been to take three or four or five families, maybe seven families and take them out of an existing church, ordain one of them a bishop and one of them a deacon and move them all into a new location. And you have an automatic new church. Now where you had one big church, you have two smaller churches. And that shows up in its locale as a fully formed, fully functioned 
church proper. Um, maybe it's still connected through a bishop for a little while in a conference or something like that. But that's the basic strategy is that you make a church whole. And then that church does what the mother church did. It, it you know, tries to bring people in at its best. <coughs> what I think is wrong about that is that none of that model matches how we see apostolic church growth happening. Where we see apostolic church growth it, it, from the biblical model, what I think we have is that you have men who ordained are as apostles. An apostle is not just the 12. There are several <coughs> other people in the New Testament who are given the title of apostle. And the post-apostolic church makes it even more abundantly clear that the church was founded by the apostles and apostolic men. And apostle is a simple term, apostolos, it means messenger, <coughs> it means sent one, it's a common Greek expression. <coughs> it means just that you have a charge to go somewhere and do something. And those, we call them church planters. Church planters are charged to start new Christian communities in new places where the church isn't. And it starts from the apostle himself. He's making disciples there in that new place and forming a nascent group that wasn't a group before. And mm -hmm. out of that new group, then that new group of, of disciples begins to organize around the direction and instruction of that church planter. Now, I think that just for purposes of the sketch, there's we, we've outlined four main responsibilities of the church planters. His job is to, to found these new communities in doctrine and practice, to weigh in on disciplinary matters, to connect the churches who are not otherwise connected. And we see this like the churches in the apostolic era are connected through their apostles. Like the the apostles at the center and the churches are the spokes and he connects all of them together so that's why we see paul raising money for different churches in different scenarios so he connects the the otherwise disconnected churches and he establishes future long-term leadership okay but then the church goes through this process right like imagine just just go back here's here's what i find most helpful is to go back and think about what was it like for paul to start churches or the other apostles but we have more data points with Paul's ministry. So he goes in there and he's this charismatic, influential person, right? He's super winsome. He's saying things that are challenging. He's manifesting works of righteousness and sometimes miracles. And everybody's like, wow, this is the guy. So they gather around him as new disciples. And then the church goes through a critical and potentially fatal moment where the apostle leaves he goes somewhere else he's itinerant so he's going somewhere else now he's disconnected from this new group now this does two things as dangerous as it is it also short circuits the potential for a cult of personality and even at that it's still an issue because paul's writing back to his corinthians saying you got this wrong it's not about me but yeah. but there's all the potential there that that could they these these this new community could fragment and fall apart but it also protects that new community from becoming Paulites or Cephites or whatever, or Paulites. So now they have to work on their own. And in the ancient world, they're disconnected by uh, weeks or months from any instruction. So they, ha they literally have to figure it out. It's sink or swim. I maintain that this is a, a necessary phase of development for a new church, that they're supposed to go through this phase where they have to democratize. They have to learn how to work through 
problems among them. They have to work out conflict. They have to work out how to teach new disciples. They're mm -hmm. working through their baptismal issues, their community issues, all these things. Then this new community begins to grow. And the first problem they run into is logistic issues. Like how do we make sure that the Greeks and the Hebrews are getting the same amount of food for their widows or whatever? Or how do we make sure that we have a room rented for when the church has to get together or an agenda or that there's a people there to help move in somebody or food for the women who are pregnant or whatever the case may be. These logistical issues as the church grows become more and more cumbersome to do in just this kind of organic, like pass a message when you're together way, especially if you're growing in a networked house church model. So the logistics become cumbersome. So the next step we see in Jerusalem as a for sure example is that deacons come. So you already have the church planters. Now you have deacons to solve, resolve these logistic issues. And the very last step is that now the church has been functioning for long enough that you have men who are practiced in ministry, who are exercised in learning how to do conflict resolution, how to lead people not by might or force, but by their, by their works, by mm -hmm. their characteristics, by their love, they're able to motivate and move the community and keep it on track and, and, and keep producing fruit. And then we go back an, a, an apostolic person goes back and says, okay, who are the people that are doing that really well? Let's ordain them as bishops for the church. And now you have a whole church on its own and it can repeat the process, make its own church planters and send them out. But what, I don't know of anybody, I don't know, do you guys know of any groups that use that kind of model for church growth? Well, Followers of the Way, isn't there a group in like Boston that's trying to yeah, do that? Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> I didn't mean that you as a commercial for me. I, yeah, that, you, uh, set that, you set that up well, Apostle Matthew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, is, is that... Seriously, though, is that basically exactly what you guys are doing? Because you guys don't have any pastors or bishops or overseers, do you? We don't at this point. And what's fascinating about that to me is that it's <clears throat> the number one criticism that we get is where are the bishops that follows the way? Mm -hmm. And we say they're on the way coming. Like, we don't have them yet. Yeah. I, I there's, a, there's a fine line of differentiation. Like, I don't want to be uh, a... a, um, a a what I know of as house churches that have no structure, governance, mm -hmm. discipline, ordination. I don't want to be that, but I also don't want to just keep doing what's been done. And so this was a, it's a long process and it's not without its difficulties. <clears throat> when I talk about this method locally and, and abroad is that there's several nearly fatal steps in this process. There's a lot of, because you have to go from this apostolic oriented community, then he leaves and they could fracture. Then you have to democratize. Well, now everybody's used to a pretty democratic process of working through issues. And then you're going to institute some kind of authority, some kind of formal authority. And that decreases the democratization. So now there's another potential conflict. So there's these steps of potential conflict all along this path, I think the end result is that the church becomes much, much more resilient and much stronger. <clears throat> so it, it follows the way though, like the church that my brother is part of doesn't have any apostles who are part of it, right? Right. But would you guys still consider like you and Finney to sort of be the apostles over the, those churches that, that, are, that you're not members of? Well, so, so I think that the, 
this is a bigger issue of how the church in Boston is structured, which is a question more of networked house churches and how you organize them. If Finney and I were those people here, albeit unordained, like we came here of our own will, but mm -hmm. we did that functional work in establishing the church. So now we have established churches here. It's the role changes. Like when it was just me and Finn starting a church in Medford, there was a lot more hands-on uh, of that kind of relationship. Now, as the church has grown and there's other ministries and other people that do things leadership oriented in, in, in the different respective congregations, it's not the same calculus. The way, actually, in lieu, of, in lieu of deacons and bishops, the way we're organized now is through, we have each congregation has what we call a congregational delegate. And it's really just a mouthpiece for that congregation. <clears throat> And it's to pass information up and down the chain of those of those churches. So if 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 my brotherhood has a question like, hey, what do we all think about this? I'm I I'm my I'm my congregation's delegate. So I take that we have a small meeting with one person from every congregation. It's generally the, the oldest brother in that group. It's not a it's not like a leadership position, it's just a spokesperson position. I would say for my congregation. Um, or another congregational delegate would say, hey, we were talking about how are we going to deal with this and what do you guys all think? And we would have a conversation as a group of delegates and then it would go back to the congregations. And then we have a process of brothers meetings. It's interrupted now from COVID, but we do have a process of brothers meetings where we make decisions as a whole church and talk about e these leadership issues were the last big things we were talking about as a whole church. So we're still in a very democratized phase of, of church decision-making, but it's also becoming quite cumbersome logistically. And we're definitely <clears throat> feeling the need for deacons, which I think so will be long, our next step. How long did it take Paul to set up overseers? Didn't he go back basically the next year and do it? Um, it's several years in some cases. Uh, it depends a little bit on how you date things, but some of those congregations are, are that way for years. I think there's something else too between the churches that have a large Jewish demographic and those that <coughs> don't, because you're kind of starting from scratch with the pagans. Mm -hmm. Whereas you potentially have an older leadership class in converted Jews that maybe you wouldn't with converted pagans right from the get. So, I guess, go ahead, Dave. Um, yeah, it was. It's a completely different question, kind of uh, relates, but also a little bit tangential. So go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that, like, you have a, a handful of house churches there. I mean, I think that if if you don't ordain a an overseer or a pastor, there are going to be people who, like, maybe it's your delegate or just someone else who naturally fills right. that role. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, what, like, why don't you just ordain them? Like, why wait so long? Um, it seems like you guys take it really seriously, which is good. And I heard once that, like, you, you guys believe that there needs to be, like, grown children who are believers. Um, right. That seems to me to be, like, a, a little bit of an over-literal reading of that text, but that's just me. Um, so... I, I think that there can actually be problems with like having people fill that role, but they're not recognized for what they actually are, which is a shepherd in that right. case. Um, so why don't, why don't you just recognize them now 
Well, there's a couple things. I think that that unordained phase of developing your ministry is an important ministerial training, like to be able to do those things by by persuasion and by love instead of by authority is an important development tool to teach ministers to do their job well. Um, like I liken it to my family. Like when I leave my home and I leave one of my older children in charge, they don't have tools of discipline to, to navigate how to deal with things in the home. Like they, they just can't do that. Even my older children, they don't have the right or authority to do that. They have to learn how to convince people how to get their brothers and sisters to agree to go along with the program. Hey, let's all clean up and get involved and do it together. And that's really important training for how to be a parent. Because if the only mechanism is coercive force, like you have to do it, because I said, then you don't learn those skills of how to bring people along. And there's something like that that happens in the church. And we see the fruit of that all the time. So <clears throat> that leads me to the conclusion that our very the terminology that we use I, I, you're not the first to say that we're over literal in fact some of our some of our very dear friends um of the church here think that we're w way too literal with those things but there's two responses that i have i would rather the the churches be without bishops than the children be without fathers and i i, I know so much so many of the charity churches over the years chewed up spit out their ministers and their children went 70 different directions because their father was trying to run a business trying to have 8 9 10 11 12 children trying to keep his marriage together trying to do gospel work and trying to organize the church and and you can't do all those and either you do one well and four bad or you do none of them as good as they should be done and the fact that we call these people elders which is literally old men like it's literally the word old men, the old men of the church are. What about the Mormon missionaries on bikes? They're elders. Funny story. I, I used to be a part of a gleaners group in Oregon uh, where there was a lot of Mormons. It was a great group to be in because they were really good about long-term storage. And I was a big family. So I was like, yeah, sweet. This is the group to be a part of. But I was doing a project with them one time and they brought some of these young missionaries around and one of my friends introduced me to this young kid, this 16 year old kid. And he's like, this is elder so-and-so. And I was like, I told him right there and there. I said, that kid can't even grow a beard. There is no way I'm calling him elder so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is pretty bizarre. Yeah, so these are supposed to be old men. And I think that that's reflected not just in the, in the terminology, but also in, in the requirements that your children do not run in riot, that they're faithful children. Those are literally what the requirements say. And I, I, I think that we're better to wait than to short sell those requirements. I think it's better. The grace is on trusting that God will take care of his church until the right men are there rather than trying to short circuit what he's put in uh, in the institution to protect it to make it how it should be i i, I don't know how far we're going to take that i'm i'm glad that we've leaned the way that we have i don't know how long that's going to carry us because there are similar requirements for a deacon and the fact is we we have to have deacons sometime soon like it just we can't put it off I mean, it's just it's becoming logistically cumbersome for the church here 
And I, so it's something that we're constantly weighing how much of that do we, do we deal with? And, and I think, you know, like Dean Taylor has grandchildren. I had my first grandchild. I, I, I have some bad. Which doesn't mean you're an elder. You're still pretty young. <laughs> I know that's the thing. Like I had my first grandchild this year, but I'm also having my 12th child this year. Like I'm still at a little, having little babies in my home. And so I think it's kind of like, there's a similar conundrum that Sattler has. Like if we want to produce people to do our work, you know, if we want to produce professors and authors and things, you have to start somewhere. And that's what we push back and forth as a brotherhood is where do you just start somewhere to get to the goal? And where do you hold the line and say, we're not going to compromise. We're going to make sure and do it right. That's, that's always the tension with these ministerial questions. Well, isn't the, isn't the ordination in large part uh, a confirmation of what already exists, a formalization yes. of what already exists? Yes. And, and, and that to me, that makes all that, the difference. The fact, that, the fact that it says, choose, know them among you, know those that work among you, and be quick to lay hands on no man. You're supposed to know the ministerial gifts of the person that you're ordaining. That means he's already doing that work before he's ordained to it. That means right. he has an initiative from his giftings that are propelling him to do this kind of work, to act like a shepherd, to act like an evangelist, to teach in the church. Those are already things that are coming out of him before he's ordained. You don't get that when you're ordained. You do that, and then you get ordained. So it's, God does call the qualified. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, the the, uh, the I'd like, I, I think it's worth highlighting and hanging out on that concept that you brought up Matthew about being able to do being able to influence without a stick um the the there's just a couple of different reasons that's really meaningful one is the like authority is not given so that you can coerce people so that you can like force people who don't want to go along um I don't believe if you look at the new Testament, it's about, it's about being able to create a vision. It's about being able to motivate people to, to work together on something worthwhile. And so, and so if, so I, the way I would say it is if you can't um, lead, if you can't lead without conferred authority, then you don't have the right to lead to, you don't have the right to have conferred authority. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And the second thing, the, the second reason for get, for making sure that someone has actually exercised, has had scope to exercise those leadership um, roles before they're formally recognized is that if a person, if you, if you have, that there are some people with character flaws or weaknesses, personality flaws or whatever it is, some of us are just not cut out to be able to handle conferred authority, to be able to handle knowing that we're in this role and and, you know, knowing that there are verses in the Bible that say, you know, let yourself be persuaded by those who lead you. Um, some of us can't handle that. And, and the, and, and, and the congregate, and if, if the authority comes from the congregation, if they, if the, if it's, you know, the congregation or the apostle in consultation with the congregation, who has to confer that authority after you've, after you have a track record then they've had a chance to see 
if you're bad at handling power or not. They've had a chance to see what happens when people resist the direction you think things ought to go. Mm-hmm. And it prevents the congregation from, from it prevents mistakes about who to confer an ordination on. Um, because when, yeah, when you have a simplistic or uh, assist, uh, a simplistic process that doesn't screen people well enough, or you ordain people too young before they've had a chance to get something of a track record behind them, you end up with, that's, that's where a lot of the men come from who, Mm-hmm. who throw their weight around and hurt people thinking mm-hmm. that they're serving God and blessing the church. And mm-hmm. it's much, much easier to find that out on the front end than on the back end and have to try to figure out how to undo the fact that you've given a bunch of authority and power to a person um, that's now misusing it. Well, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of skills. It's not just the authority dynamic, the power dynamics, which are super, mm-hmm. super important. And we see, yeah, travesty after travesty in the church with ordaining men who are not capable of using their authority properly but it's also like i i think so for for my own self like i started my first church when i was 22 21 22 years old and that's not something that 21 22 year olds should be doing there was there and i i was just reflecting this weekend when i saw a bunch of people from my old church at a wedding i was at there's a lot of reasons that 21 year olds should not be starting churches like there's a lot of fallout from those things like there's a lot of good things i don't regret it there wasn't anywhere else for me to go it's not like i feel like it was i I did something wrong it's just that i understand very well why that's not the paradigm that the church is supposed to be built out of and as i've when i was a young man i wanted to be a bishop i said okay it says if any man desires office of a bishop he desires a good thing what do i need to do to put my life in order so i could be a bishop i want to be that i want to be faithful to god i want to follow him in this in this calling and and when i was young i felt like these 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 um requirements for the office were like hurdles that i had to get over in my life like i had to like a like a like a hurdler like i had to run and jump over these things and raise my family and do this thing and not be greedy and like it was hurdles and what i came to understand after a lot of my friends who were church leaders who were better men than me had abysmal failure either in their churches or in their family life and i watched just like plane crash after train wreck after plane crash after train wreck and i was like this something's not working here like this is bad 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 stuff like this is not the kind of outcome that i want in my life because i love those men and i know those men and i trust those men and it's not working out so what are we doing how do we do something different and over a process of time god really worked in me that those requirements of of having faithful children are not an obstacle they're a license what god is saying in those things is that young men you don't have to worry about the church right now worry about your family that's your job that Mm -hmm. do you want to be a minister in the church do you want to serve the the church then learn how to care for your children and uh, and having raised a few my my oldest children now what I realize as a father with some older children, and they're still young, my oldest is 20. 
what I realized is that you have to change and you have to shift your stance and your footing to deal with every new age for every child. And that flexibility to, to, to come to the place where you realize as a Christian father, you can't have formulaic approaches. What works in one situation Mm -hmm. does not work in another. And what works at one age does not work at another. And what works with one child, one person does not work with another. And the ability to flex and shift and move and respond in different ways to those different situations in discipling a whole life is the necessary Mm -hmm. skill for becoming a minister in the church of God. And that's why it's framed that way. Else, how shall you take care of the house of God? Like you have mm-hmm. to learn these skills because a bishop has to do that. He has to know how to deal with an individual, an individual situation, a timing, all where to pull, where to let go. All this is really, really delicate art to mess with people's lives. And God's saying, you have to, you have to be proven. The people that know you best have heard you every time you've been out of control, every time you've been upset, every time you've been angry, every time you've been inappropriate, every time you've been lazy, every time they know every flaw in your character and life. And if they still want to follow your God, then maybe you're qualified to help in the church. That just makes sense to me. That's good teaching. That really is. But we haven't done that and our churches suffer for it. Mm -hmm. Well, it does say, that if your kids don't behave themselves, you should sit on them. That's what it says. It says having his children in subjection with all gravity. What does that mean? See, you, you need to add that since you're no, since the, you're hyper, since you're the bigger you are, the better father you are. Then yeah, that's right. This is, this is why Dave is not a minister in the church. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the, well, but I think there's <laughs> there's more than one reason. So so. The the um but yeah that I think that's that's really I think that's really worth worth uh yeah a really good point if it's if you flunk out in the home mm-hmm. there is no it, it, it's it's folly to turn you loose on a bigger field to mm-hmm. do more damage right um and and so so that's that really is it's almost like seeing your children grow up is is a referendum on a person's um on a person's abilities uh, and on their abilities to like yeah adapt like you said it's it's um because you're not going to be a good parent when you start out necessarily right but you need to be able to wreck it's it's there's another really important skill and that is to recognize when you're doing something wrong and correct um you know to self-assess and if you're, you know, you're going to be a bad parent if you, if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know right. how to say, look, what I'm doing is not working. I'm right. going to do something different. I'm going to keep trying things until I find what works. Um, and if you, it's, it's not so much about whether you're great at it as to what, whether you can adapt and grow, because that's also going to be essential. You don't arrive at a point where you're, you know, you're, you're the leader now and you know how to do this. I think going through that ministerial training in the family and in the church, it, it does something else too, that it, it dispossesses you of ownership. Uh, you know, I've been involved in a lot of churches and I've never been a bishop and, and, but I've always been, you know, active and involved in leadership and stuff. And, 
and there there are crises that come up in the church and in that situation i've had to again and again go to god in desperation and prayer and say this isn't mine it's yours what do you want me to do how do we how do we work together it's not how do i control this situation and make it come out the way i want because i don't ha- it's not mine it's i don't have that and i I'm hopeful that people who go through that process and who learn how to pray in desperation for the church and say, how do we do what you want us to do are better equipped than as bishops to maintain that attitude and come with a brotherhood as a part of a brotherhood, because they've always been that, that they carry that into their ministry, their ordained ministry, instead of trying to manage outcomes and force, force things Mm -hmm. to happen. Does this mean a single person cannot be a, a overseer or a pastor? Well, okay, well, let's make a differentiation between those two things. There, there's, there's different gifts listed. There's Romans 12, there's 1 Corinthians 12, and there's Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 are office gifts. They're, they're things that the church ordains for ministry purposes. Um, that's, that's apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist, shepherd or pastor those things are things that are that are ministries in the church that are supposed to be operating for the unity of the saints they're 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 recognized things that the church is doing as an office mm-hmm. but there are there are other gifts that are not office oriented and you can have you can have pastoring gifts and not be ordained as a shepherd in the church those mm-hmm. are two different things just like you can um you can have um a prophetic gift and not be ordained as a prophet these things can operate in in conjunction or in differentiation across those three lists of gifts so it's a complex conversation just about giftings but people can be pastoral without being an ordained shepherd but it does mean that that in that office yes a single person can't be in that office but what a single person can do is be an apostle, to be a church planter. In fact, when you look at, when you lay out what, what the church planters are doing versus what the bishops are doing, they're very, very different ministries. So the church planter is itinerant. He's bold. He's courageous. He's adventurous. He's reaching out in new places. He's taking risks. He's cutting edge. He's always on the forefront. He's always launching out. He's always going and doing. The bishop is, and, and you can imagine why a young single person is the ideal candidate for that. If he's trained, and especially in conjunction with an older apostle, which is something we're starting to try to do here, is match up younger and older men to do these works together. Uh, I, just, uh, I, I, I just started a, a new congregation with Zach Johnson and I worked together to start a new congregation in Minneapolis. It's very small and it's brand new. But it's been great to have a younger brother along with me to help make that make that work happen. So we're trying to connect these across generations. But and he's not single, but he's a younger man. But single young men are ideal candidates for this bold, adventurous, dangerous work of of church planting, potentially dangerous. Whereas the bishop is about stability and structure Mm -hmm. and holding and he's established and he's got a family and he's got you know, this long list of accomplishments personally and, and, and ministerially, he's a very 
broad base for the church instead of a point of a spear going into a new place. So you can see how there's a there's a real beautiful elegance to the idea that the ideal church planter is a young single man who's bold and adventurous and the ideal bishop is an older brother with an established family. I love how the, I, I love how the whole uh, structure presupposes community. This can't right. happen without the establishment of community. And that whole, um, that whole community is something that the church world at large doesn't really know much about. And, um, you know, coming from an Anabaptist background, that's, that's one of our real strengths is that that community across, um, not even just locally, but the, the, the broad, um, you know, national and even international community that's there. And that's what the church is supposed to create and do and be. Right. Um, and I, I like how like this structure doesn't work without the community being created Absolutely. to to support that and and the community is an important issue with the gospel too and i think that's why this this form of church growth is is really really impressive to me is because what so like going back to my street preacher days when i would always go out and and, and preach on the street corners, what I, what I came to realize at a certain point was that a part of the ineffectiveness of that approach was that it's all well and good. And, you know, my street preaching wasn't all shouting. It was caring for drug addicts and prostitutes and homeless people and bringing them to my house. It wasn't an, it wasn't an impersonal, I wasn't just like a shouting street preacher telling everybody they're going to hell. I really did care about people. I really did love people. And, and I think the ineffectiveness was that it's all well and good to say to anybody, Jesus has the answer. Jesus is the answer for you personally, for humanity, for, for man and God, for everything. Jesus is the answer. Let me tell you about him. That's all nice. But, but the real crux of the gospel is to create community. It's to make us who were aliens a part of the people of God, to translate us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom, not into salvation, into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the purpose of the gospel, to make us a part of a people that we did not belong to before. That's the consequence of the gospel, the immediate consequence. And so for me to say repent for the for the kingdom of god is at hand is interesting and perhaps noteworthy but the but the final punchline the final exclamation on the proclamation of the gospel is come and see come mm -hmm. and see the people who are living like god intended people to live mm -hmm. and so you start with these nuclei community where people they change their orientation to property. They change their orientation to self. They change their orientation to the world, to power, to all these things. And they start living like the new humanity, living like the society of Jesus. So that when they tell people this is the gospel of the kingdom of God, they can represent that message in living form by a breathing mm -hmm. organic community. That's the gospel. That'll preach. That's good. That's good. And that was the, the big issue I had in the Beachy Church is I was doing a lot of street evangelism and I did not feel comfortable inviting people to my church. 
and that's becoming the issue I'm finding myself in once more. <laughs> right. Which is why we're we're looking for something different. Um, but yeah, that that is such a big deal. Like, and I think I think that's how Americans, especially, are going to be reached. I don't. I think that there's opportunities with foreigners in in kind of traditional style. You know, just straight up share the gospel, and they might actually respond positively. With Americans, there's very little hope for that and i say that pride it a ton what i think there is hope for americans is exactly what you spelled out a countercultural community of people who are living out a compelling um new society essentially Um, well that's be attractive that's why people flock to holmes county and um and lancaster to see these to see these quaint people that live in community um, and, and have this, this way of life, but they're like, yeah, it's nice. And everybody's like, there's that, there's that appeal, but it's like, but this is a, it's a, it's an ethnic thing and it's not for me. And the message right. of the gospel is this is for everybody. This is the kind of community that not the, not the cute little buggies and whatever, but, uh, the community where people actually show up and care about each other and are in each other's corner. That's that's the whole point right right well that's uh, nation's hungry for that (laughs) they are it's 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 the hope of it's the hope of the church is to be the church that's that's how we that's how we proclaim by this shall all men know that you're my disciples you have love one for another that's not just warm feelings that's living as the society of jesus that's having a real outworking of preferring my brother above me and meeting each other's needs and being in harmony with each other so any anybody else have any thoughts they want to share we're 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 about at our time limit you'll make disciples of all nations there we are all right guys well thanks it was a privilege being with you i love y'all yeah Yeah. love you too matthew and the rest of you guys too but especially matthew (laughs) (laughs) all right all right peace good night night thanks everybody yep good talking